This is Rumble, and I'm Michael Moore. Welcome, everybody. I uh, hope everybody uh, has had a decent few days uh, in the midst of everything that's uh, going on. I, um, I'm very happy to announce that our first Rumble film, uh, Rumble Media, um, we are releasing a film by Jeff Gibbs, a film that I executive produced called Planet of the Humans, and it has... I don't know where the official line of viral is. If if three million people watch it in five or six days, I I'm, I'm kind of think that's probably it. I don't I don't know. I, whatever whatever it's called, over three million people have now watched this film since we released it on Tuesday, and um, we're all pretty blown away. And we're so grateful to all of you who've taken the time to watch a very intense movie about where we are at with. Uh, uh, what we call climate change, but what is so much more um, in terms of how we've treated the planet, how it's affecting us, and what we need to do about it. And um, we are going to have another live stream uh, Q&A and discussion with you later this week. I'll, I'll give you uh, the date here in the next day or two. It'll probably be Thursday or Friday, but I'll let you, I'll let you know. And um, because we love to hear your feedback, we want, to, we want to answer your questions. You could say that the third act of the movie is in your hands. Uh, the movie has to be completed by the people who see the movie because we are all in this together in terms of figuring out the solutions and, uh, and what we're going to do. But I mean, <laughs> we just started rumble here on December 17th. It's a little over four months now. And uh, we're probably going to pass our 9 millionth uh, download mark here sometime tonight, which again, that on top of the the three million of you who've downloaded Planet of the Humans, um, it's it's been a very um, wonderful beginning to Rumble, and and this movie is as we told you at the very beginning, if the podcast did well, we would build upon the podcast to do other things to um, help the country, help the planet. In what we're in, and especially in this year that we're going through. And of course, now when we started this on December 17th, it wasn't until December 31st that the World Health Organization um, said that we were uh, facing something called a coronavirus. Um, something that we civilians, we don't know what these words mean. Then they gave it, then they gave it a name and they didn't call it Barry or Bob, Julie. It was called COVID-19. And, um, we had just started the podcast and um, didn't know that this would be one of the things on our agenda for this year. A lot of us were just thinking about and worried about looking forward to November 3rd. But um, as life happens, as it often does, uh, things occur uh, that weren't in the plans. And now everyone, every one of you listening to this, we've all had to deal with this. And not just those of you living in the U.S., but Canada and across Europe, Australia, Asia, Africa. Um South America, it's everywhere. So, um, so hang in there. My usual words of advice: I don't give you false hope. I, I try to, I try to push toward realistic hope, which means that um, we can beat anything. I hope if we um, have the wherewithal and the will, and mostly the brains, the science uh, to do that. So that's what we continue to do. That and. Uh, keeping our distance from each other and washing our hands. 20 seconds of soap and water, my friends, kills this virus. <laughs> As I've said to you before, 
Think of all the things in your life that you wish you could get rid of with just 20 seconds of soap and water. <sighs> so this, this killer virus can be killed as simply as that of keeping the hands washed, keeping them off the face and, um, and just taking care of yourselves. Get, get some sleep. Walk around. Even if you're in the apartment, walk around the apartment. Um, get some fresh air. Open the windows and the doors, even if it's a little cold still. All those things. Um, and, and keep your mental wits about you. Um, listen to me if that helps or turn me off if it hurts. But, um, um, but I have, I have things I'm going to, I'll be talking to you about in the coming days. I've continued, continued to do my, uh, my journalism and my research as to what's really happening. The truths that were being told that were not being told or the half truths that were being told. All of that. I want to help clear up that uh, for you. So we'll, we'll also t take care of that in the, uh, in the coming days. But first and uh, foremost, um, I'm very honored to have as my guest on uh, today's podcast, someone who I deeply admire, who is considered a hero, um, a savior. She'll, she'll reject all of these terms, but, but to the people who are from Flint, who either grew up there or who still live there, uh, know her as the person who first made the public and the authorities aware that something was amiss, that there was lead in the blood of our children in Flint. And so she conducted her own study and, and discovered that uh, what was wrong was indeed that, and that what was more than likely the cause of it was the authorities in the state of Michigan um, switching uh, the people of Flint from drinking and using the clean water from Lake Huron, which is a glacial lake, 10,000-year-old pure glacial lake, pure in the sense, I mean, obviously, all water in our world now is contaminated in some way, but science also has figured out a way to bring that water 70 miles from Lake Huron to the city of Flint. And, and then, for reasons that I will get into with her in a few minutes, um, uh, the people of Flint were no longer able to get the water from Lake Huron and were told to drink the water from the Flint River. And, uh, and thus began what is now referred to as the Flint water crisis. It is six years old uh, as of this week. Uh, this past Saturday was the six, sixth anniversary of this terrible tragedy. And, um, but we have my guest to thank for um, uh, making us aware of it. And not just that, but fighting, fighting for these kids and continuing to fight for these kids. I'm so grateful uh, that she's with us here today. Uh, please welcome to Rumble podcast here, uh, Dr. Mona Hannah Atisha. Dr. Mona, how are you? I am doing great. Thank you, Michael. It is always great to be with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. But, but I, um, I had heard and, um, that a few weeks ago you tested positive and you came down with the virus. Is that, is that true or? Yep. So about a, a month ago, I developed the symptoms that we're now all familiar with of, of fever, headaches, uh, body aches, exhausting fatigue. Uh, and then a couple of days later, lost um, most bizarrely my sense of smell and taste. And that's kind of what clued me into that. I, I probably had uh, COVID. I, I got tested as a healthcare worker um, and it came back positive. I was fortunate to have a mild course and have pretty much recovered, although I, I still can't smell or taste, which as an American is, is very difficult because we love spicy, flavorful food, um, but um, much, much better and, and back at work. Uh, you know, just it's interesting that you say that the the importance of the uh, sense of smell. 
Um, <laughs> cause I was going to ask you uh, between taste and smell, which would you, uh, if you had to lose one, which, which would you lose? And, and oh. immediately I, I thought, well, smell I can do without cause most of the stuff I'm smelling isn't very good. But, yeah. um, but then you, of course, you mentioned the wonderful food that, mm-hmm. that comes from your, your, your parents' world. Do you, were, were you born, were you born in Iraq or were you born in uh, Detroit? I was um, I was actually born in the UK. I was born in England. Um, my England, father was wow. yeah, my father was studying there, um, and the plan was to go back to Iraq. We're from Baghdad, um, but that was when Saddam Hussein was um, rising in power, and my parents realized, um, kind of as uh, you know, as folks who um, had a keen eye to what was happening uh, back home, where their friends and classmates were had gone missing and then voices were being stifled and media was being attacked that they couldn't go back home. So we immigrated to the States. Right. And then, um, and then, and somehow then you ended up uh, in the Detroit area. Is that, is that, is that how I remember it? Yeah, so we actually came to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan when yeah, I was like four. I said, like I said, Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> actually, the opposite 12, of Detroit. Eight hundred miles from Detroit. <laughs> so I think when my parents saw Michigan, they're like, "Yay, Michigan!" Because that's by Detroit and Dearborn, and that's pretty much where all the Arab Americans are. Um, but I don't think they realized that the Upper Peninsula of Michigan was about twelve hours away um, from Detroit. And we spent a couple years at Michigan Tech University, where my father completed a postdoc in metallurgy and. And then we landed um, back to the metro to the metro Detroit area where the growing kind of diaspora from the Middle East was. Now, the Michigan Institute of Technology. This is the other MIT, uh, Michigan Institute of Technology. Actually, it's a very fine school. Absolutely. But you're so far up in that peninsula there um, <laughs> that literally you are you are further north than I'd say half the population of Canada where they live down in the southern you know part of the uh, along the border and whatever. Um, that is so far north of Michigan. It's, it's, uh, it is. And can, can you imagine these Iraqi immigrants from Baghdad, you know, used to the palm trees and the, the you know, the summers of no. the Middle East and in northern Michigan where uh, where we have ice sculpture festivals and my father would ski to the college. Jeez. Oh, yes, it would look it would look like. It probably it looked it must have felt like hell, except there was snow and ice. So uh, it, it, was, it was actually, I mean, it, from my memories and my parents' recollection, um, recollections, it was a wonderful time because we were warmed by the other immigrants that also were there in that college campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was lots of folks from all over the world that were studying at this other MIT. Um, a lot of them engineers who um, had young families as well. So it was a, a very pleasant time. Okay. So you are you are a pediatrician, um, yes. and uh, you uh, you teach at Michigan State University. But m- but your day your day job essentially is uh, to care for children in Flint through the um, MSU extension there through the Hurley Medical uh, the mm-hmm. hospital system there, and um, and and you why don't you tell us the story of you know what happened in terms of you were treating. Uh, the children, and yeah. you started to notice uh, certain things that didn't seem to be right. Yeah, so I have uh, the best job in the world as a pediatrician. I get to wake up every day and hang out with our gorgeous, brilliant, brave, resilient Flint kids who, who you know, give me the energy to keep going. And um, and, and Michael, I'm sure you could tell the story better than I. But in um, April of 25th, just a couple days ago, 2014. Our water source was changed. So, so right. So this was six years ago um, that they decided, and I believe if, if I'm correct at the time, Flint's mayor, elected mayor, had been 
uh, set aside by an edict from the governor mm-hmm. where he then installed his own person that was called like a, a, some, a manager. Or Emergency something. manager. Emergency manager who would then call the shots and run Flint on behalf of uh, the governor, Rick Snyder. Uh, really in a breakdown of democracy driven by austerity. Um, under emergency management uh, through a gerrymandered legislature. So there's quite a bit of backstory here. And they were looking for ways to save money. And I guess one of the ways they thought of saving money was to um, switch over from the water that had to travel 70 miles from Port Huron, from Lake Huron, and uh, just dip into the Flint River, which is, you know, literally feet away from the Flint uh, water plant. Is that essentially what, what happened? Yeah, pretty much the governor appointed uh, emergency managers and a series of four of them who just directly reported to him and they really usurped all local control, including the mayor. So the mayor was just like a puppet mayor and everything was driven by austerity, uh, saving money. So as a result, the uh, emergency manager said, um, push the button and Take the water out of the Flint River. Now, now, Mona, uh, Dr. Mona. <laughs> Dr. Michael, um, we have Dr. Trump now, so it's okay. Everybody's yeah. kind of honorary and I, degree. I actually have, I have an honorary degree from Michigan State. As there you a doctor, go. There you so, go, Dr. Michael. Uh, but we will not spend the rest <laughs> of this podcast calling me Dr. Moore. Um, but the river implies that it's water. So what would be so wrong with drinking? I mean, it's fr- a river is fresh water. What's wrong with drinking? What would be wrong from drinking? you know, drinking from the Flint River. Yeah. So, Michael, you probably know some of the history of the Flint River, and it used to be a dumping ground. Yes, my, my sarcasm didn't come through <laughs> strong enough. <laughs> so, the Flint River, yes. uh, um, the quality of that river is much better than it used to be thanks to the Clean Water Act. I mean, in the past, the Flint River has actually caught on fire twice. Um, so, it, it, the quality was better, but it nowhere compares to the quality of the Great Lakes which we had been getting. On top of being a poor quality water source, the crux of the problem was that the water wasn't being treated properly when we switched over to the Flint River. It was missing this really critical, important ingredient called corrosion control. And without that ingredient, our water that we were drinking in Flint was about 20 times more corrosive than the water that we had been from getting from the Great Lakes. So corrosive control, this is where, and I think this happens in most water systems, where it's just a little, it's an inject uh, of uh, this, well, I guess we can call it a chemical into the water, but a safe chemical, because the idea of it is to um, make sure that anything in the water doesn't corrode right. the pipes that it's going through. If it corrodes, because remember, these pipes were laid, um, you know, 90, 100 years ago, right? and they were lead pipes. And right. so you want to make sure that the water doesn't corrode the lead and put it into the water. So you put this safe thing called corrosive control, right? Right. Right. Into the, in, into the water and the water is safe. And then it's safe. It's safer because the lead isn't leaching into the water. Right. So the addition of this corrosion control creates like this protective layer, a scale inside the pipes so that the lead doesn't come out as much as it should um, without that corrosion control. It's a critical, important, federally mandated ingredient that you're supposed to add to drinking water. So that wasn't done. And um, so the first weeks and months start of the people of Flint drinking water that's from the Flint River going through the lead pipes and clearly um, uh, corroding the lead that's in those pipes. 
what, what were the next steps that happened and where do you come into this? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, right away when that water switched about 60 years ago, it, it just, it didn't seem right. And, and the people of Flint were loud and heroic and they knew something was wrong. We had um, discolored water. Do you remember those pictures of like brown, yellow, green water coming out of right. people's taps? And that was, that was from iron corrosion. So it was also corroding the iron pipes, which great, created that rusty colored water. The lead in water was actually clear. You can't even see lead in water, which makes it even more, um, you know, difficult to diagnose. Uh, And then there was bacteria in the water um, because of the poor quality water. And we had boil advisories to get rid of the bacteria in the water. And boiling water is probably one of the worst things that you could do with lead in water. Because if say you're boiling, you know, noodles, the lead is going to concentrate in whatever you're going to, whatever you're cooking. So it will concentrate in, in those noodles. But for many folks, you know, they were instructed to boil the water because of the bacteria, but it's the worst thing you could do with lead. So red flags after red flags. And I think the greatest red flag that happened just a few months after this water switch was that General Motors, born in Flint, with still uh, some plants in Flint, noticed that our drinking water was corroding their engine parts. Um And I'm going to repeat that because to this day, it boggles my mind. Our drinking water was corroding engine parts and General Motors was allowed to go back to Great Lakes water. And the people of Flint were literally told to relax, that everything was okay, that everything met all safety, you know, standards and everything was in compliance. Um, Okay, again, I'll try my sarcasm again. <laughs> Clearly, Dr. Mona, you don't understand that the protecting the auto parts that are going into automobiles <laughs> is far more important than what people are drinking in their homes. Okay, did I pull that off? <laughs> that was great. <laughs> and I think I think that's that's very I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm only laughing. I think you're only laughing because the anger Ugh. that we feel inside that that the company's auto parts were more precious and that and that that sing that plant was hooked back up to the Lake Huron water. Right. And the people yeah. continued to drink this water that w- the qu- didn't even meet the quality no. for a Buick. Yeah. No, I mean how how do we value corporate interests, corporate profits more than we value our most precious resource resource, which which should be our children. Uh, so let this be, you know, the, a symbolic example of what's so wrong with this country and why we continue to find ourselves in situations like this pandemic where we're not valuing our most vulnerable populations. Well, okay. Well, there you, you just dropped the, uh, the $64,000 question right now. This is a tough time we're, we're in. This is a I'm tough sure you, time. You, and, you, know, you feel it because you actually, you ended up with COVID-19. So. Yeah, entirely. Uh, I'm I'm great. I'm fine. I'm recovered. But but it it was all preventable. Every single illness, every single death that we had in this this country, um, with with proper prevention, public health infrastructure, respective science, good governance, could have prevented where we are right now. Which are the exact same lessons of what happened in Flint. We had incompetent leadership that didn't value health and, and people and our children. We disrespected science and scientists and, and medicine and doctors. Um, we had been stripping our public health infrastructure for decades. Um, the exact same thing happened and, and will continue to happen if, if this pandemic does not give us the opportunity 
to look at what has been happening and provide us with really the the political will to do better. When you when you say that, I mean, I just I think everybody listening to this is wondering. I mean, this when you look now at Flint in this in this water emergency, um, it's it's like a big it's a big warning um, to what we didn't know would be ahead of us here. But when you talk about how our public health infrastructure has been debilitated by uh, funding being ripped from it, from a whole bunch of whole, I mean, would you get into that just for a minute here? Because I, I, I you work in that, in that system. So, I mean, it, it, when it comes to like this pandemic and we, when, even when it comes to what happened in Flint, like it's easy to lay blame, for example, on one person and, and in Flint, people want to lay blame on the former governor. And in this pandemic, you know, folks want to lay blame on the president and absolutely they have a significant role to play in what happened. Um, but we really have to look at the underlying villains of how we got to these, these spaces. Um, and it's been a longstanding attack on science, a longstanding attack on public health. There have been so many interests, especially corporate interests, beginning from like the 1930s and before, from the lead industry to the sugar industry um, to, um, you know, coal to what have you, that has tried to cut and successfully cut public health regulations and cut budgets of the CDC at the you know, federal level, but also at, at the state level where they've attacked, for example, big government and all of these you know, agencies and institutions that we need to keep us healthy and safe. Um, so we have to really look back. We, we have to be students of history and recognize that the problem of today did not happen. You know, this crisis we're in did not happen because of the last few months or so. It happened because of a long history where we've disrespected science, disinvested in public health because of, um, you know, p- potential regulations, but also, you know, created this widening gap of inequities where some people benefit and some people, some people don't. So those are the lessons that we have to learn, not only from what happened in Flint, but they're absolutely applicable today. (sighs) It's um, we haven't learned these lessons. This is, this is just the sad truth of this. And I think most people listening to this, they know this story in Flint. They feel bad about it. So many people sent us cases of bottled water, mm-hmm. which I tried to explain to people. Well, it was very generous and wonderful. Um, it the average American human um, uses up to eighty gallons of water a day. We don't realize how much water we use between yeah. flushing the toilet, the shower, brushing teeth, cooking, drinking, the pets, yeah. um, et cetera, et cetera. We use a lot of water. Um, I, I just I just saw this. Uh, some spots and PSA on TV that, that said just rinsing the dishes and trying to scrape the crud off our plates Yeah, that we eat. A family uses up to 20 gallons a day yeah. just yeah. from rinsing. Yeah. Um, so we use a lot of water and I did the math once. I, I can't remember it now, but how many bottles of water we would need in Flint mm-hmm. to take care of the hundred thousand people that, that use 80 gallons a day. How many 16 ounce bottles? Now the smart people listening to this have already done the math and they, they've got the answer, but it literally, I, I think is in the millions Yeah. and, and there's no amount of water you can send us in bottles to help us in that way. With, and having said that, thank you for everybody who sent water. Yeah. But um, I mean, what, 
what what is the situation right now? I guess maybe that's what people yeah. would like to know because I hear from everybody in Flint, and of course yeah. I live up in Traverse City now, so right. I live in, up in the the northern woods of Michigan, so to speak. And yeah. um, and when I'm working, I'm usually in New York, and which is where I am mm-hmm. uh, now. I got I got uh, I don't want to say stuck here. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm glad to be here mm-hmm. in this apartment, but I've been inside for this is uh, uh, day number. Fifty. Oh my God! It's day. The today is day number fifty. Oh my God! Mm. All right. So you get the gist of this. Yeah. Um, it's uh, fifty days inside, and um, and yet I still sound somewhat uh, uh, sane. But uh, <laughs> the, the jury will be out on that for a while. <laughs> yeah. But but seriously though, um, I'm worried about because I hear, especially now, people in Flint to go through this pandemic. Yeah. After what they've been through. Yeah. With the water. Yeah. With with six years with this starting out when before before you even discovered it and then after you discovered it and trying to get people to yeah. listen, the, the the governor we now know found out about this sooner than we knew that he knew and his chief of staff knew his chief of staff definitely knew. Um, that, that I mean there was a, a report last week. Um, I don't, I don't know where it was, but it was it was like amazing that more information has come out now mm-hmm. about how much um how much the, the governor knew. Yeah. So these kids, especially kids, but everybody drank any lead in the water is bad for everybody. You mm-hmm. made that very clear yep, to all of no us, safe but, level. right? No safe mm-hmm. level of lead. Mm-hmm. That is what you mm-hmm. said for a long mm-hmm. time. Um, and, uh, and you wrote this beautiful book um, with, with the eyes can't mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. It had a subhead to about um, hope or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get to the hope. You know, I'm going to get to the hope. <laughs> I know, but after 50 days in the apartment here, <laughs> I can't hardly say the word hope, but, um, but no, but, but it's a beautiful book. And people, if you haven't read it, uh, 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 what the eyes don't see by Dr. Um, Mona Hanna Atisha, uh, the New York times, uh, at the end of the year, last year in, in December yeah. listed it as one of their best books of the year to make the times list of best books of the year. Very few books make awesome. that list. And congratulations uh, for that. Thank you. Um, not only because of the uh, the history and the journalism that's in it, but the poetry Thank of your you. writing um, is very moving, very touching. I and I, it's it's such to read the book right now with in what we're living in is just so it's so powerful. But but you you state <laughs> throughout that there is no safe level of lead, and especially for children six years and younger. It, it, if they ingest lead, it causes, I'm just quoting you essentially, mm-hmm. permanent brain damage. I mean, permanent means permanent as in that we don't have, it's not a pill the kids can take. And then suddenly mm-hmm. the, the lead damage is gone. Can you just explain what that means in, in terms of, because these kids now, this is six years later. So the, uh, the ones that were five or six at the time yeah. are now 12. The ones that yeah. were being born, it's babies. Yeah. Um, we're being bathed in this water. It's just, ah, oh, it's just so awful. Yeah. So let me kind of share where Flint is right now. So yeah, we have six-year-olds who are, have, who are scared of the water. They've never had tap water, you know, from their homes. Uh, and, you know, as much of, as the story of Flint is the story of a crime, committed with absolute indifference against our most vulnerable populations and and especially our children. Um, It is also this amazing story of um, how kind of unexpected ragtag people 
came together and refused to accept the status quo. And here's where I'm going to get to my hope piece. Um, and I'm, I'm a big fan of hope. And I want this Flynn story um, to really serve as a lesson of how we don't have to accept what's happening to us, how we don't have to, um, you know, you know, accept that the government says our water is safe and we've invested enough in public health and that these disparities are okay. They're not okay. And and Flint serves as this amazing story of of resistance, of what can happen when people come together and and fight back, literally fight back on behalf of their kids and make a difference. When I first shared my research as you know, sharing that the children of Flint were exposed to lead, um, I was dismissed. I was denied. I was attacked uh, by the state. Um, and it was hard, as any whistleblower will tell you who's tried to speak truth to power. It was hard. Um, but it was also this incredible opportunity um, to build a team of folks who also had the best interests of the city and this children at heart. And what we've been able to do in the last few years um, since building really this movement um, is to put into place some of the positive interventions to support children's and families in Flint. It is not enough and it's not you know supported for as long as it needs to be. But things that we have been able to do for Flint are things like two brand new childcare centers and literacy programs and expanded Medicaid and healthcare services and nutrition programs. All of these really critical things, which which are common sense, which are things that kids in Flint needed decades ago, but things that kids need all over this country. And we've been able to, to shine a light on those issues. Um, so we've, you know, we're, we're doing good things for the kids. It's, it's time limited. I, what keeps me up at, the, at night is the ability to sustain this work. For example, our Flint registry, the funding is set to expire next year, but this is, this is not worked at that can end, uh, especially on behalf of these kids. Our water is still not safe to drink. Um, we still cannot turn on the tap and have a glass of water without um, a filter in place or using bottled water. And that's because our pipes are being replaced. So for the 18 months that we were on this Flint River water that wasn't being treated properly, it ate up our pipes. When the EPA finally came in, they said that we were drinking through a lead painted straw where it was literally like chips of, of lead scale were coming off our pipes and into our drinking water. Um, so those pipes are, were damaged and need to be replaced. Um, and that replacement process has been on hold because of obviously the pandemic, um, but it should be done within a, within a few months. It's supposed to be done um, in 2020. And then Flint will be the only the third city in the country that has replaced their lead pipes. Uh, but now many more more cities are following. So kind of where we are right now yeah. is we're still on precautions. We've done a lot for kids. You know, the story of Flint can even even come off as a playbook on, on how to create change in your communities. Um, but it's a, it's a long road ahead that needs ongoing support. Sorry about the sirens uh, here. We're yeah, in New York that's, City. That's and today, it's like yeah. this all day long. And I don't mean like back in the old days. I mean all day long right now um in spite of what they say that the there's you know less and less hospitalizations every day and yet there's still a thousand a day mm. and there's still up to 400 people a day dying um here so um my apologies for that mm -hmm. interruption there um this is okay so this is seems like good news about the replacing of the pipes so here's my question though i know that they're replacing all the mainline pipes that go down the, the center of the streets and i 
are they replacing also the pipes that go from that main pipe into every home? So the pipes that are being replaced are the service lines. And what service lines are, are the lines from your main to your home. Those are what were usually made of lead. Um, lead is a thinner diameter pipe. Lead pipes are of thinner diameter. They're not the mains. So what's being replaced are um, the pipes that go from your main to the, to the front of your house. And if it was made of lead or uh, or if it was galvanized, because that can also um, release lead. So those are what are being replaced. Right, but the but the but the, the the pipe that goes that goes into the home and the pipe the internal plumbing in the homes that that got corroded, that that plumbing's still there, right? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and you know the the, the history of lead is is an important history that really speaks to so much of this kind of science and, and public health kind of dismissal and denial. So the lead industry. Um, was absolutely evil. Um, and as a nation, we were very late to restrict the use of lead in our plumbing and our paint and our gasoline. Uh, the story of lead and gasoline by General Motors is uh, mind boggling and really includes some some heroes, including one of my favorite um, public health doctors, Alice Hamilton, who went after General Motors and Charles Kettering with all her might to try to um, restrict the use of lead and gasoline. Uh, but General Motors at that time called it a gift from God and that there was no alternative to putting lead and gasoline. And she said, this is going to be a public health disaster. Um, but she was um, ridiculed and dismissed and lead was allowed in gasoline in the 1920s. Um, and mm -hmm. it was th with that same vengeance that the lead industry, um, and they kind of came together as a lead industry association, um, fought public health, instilled doubt in science, went after scientists and parents who, who knew of lead's dangers. So it wasn't until 1986 did we restrict the use of lead in our service lines. Um, and until that time, Chicago was still putting them into in their service lines. But get this, not until 2014, did we restrict the use of lead in our interior fixtures and, and faucets? So all those kind of pipes and fixtures and faucets and solder inside our homes, um, those could have lead in them if they were um, if they were built before, or, you know, produced before 2014. And and Michael, you tell me, do you think there's any homes in Flint that were built after 2014? Oh my God! No, there. I don't. <laughs> I don't think there's. Uh, I don't know when the last new house was built in Flint, but I'm sure it had a black and white television. Yeah. So most of <laughs> most of our plumbing has lead in it, and that means most of our plumbing in our nation has lead in it. And to really minimize the risk of exposure from lead in your interior plumbing, um, that's where corrosion control is really, really important. But that's why really everybody should um, consider using a lead clearing filter, um, especially if they have a young child or a pregnant mom. So, is will that protect people though? That filter in the throughout the whole house will it protect them from lead? Yeah. Um, so so um, it has to be something called a point of use filter. And I have learned way too much about water. Um, so it's a filter that's installed right before the water comes out. So right at the end of your kitchen faucet, because even that faucet could have that faucet fixture could have lead in it. So right before the water uh, comes out of, of the tap is where you install these filters. Um, they have to be certified by NSF, the National Sanitation Foundation, uh, to, to clear lead. And there's certain certifications. And these are the filters that have been distributed in Flint. These filters have to not, they have to be properly installed and they have to be properly maintained. So 
it's it's kind of tricky. It doesn't always work in old faucets and it doesn't always work in the fancy new faucets. Um, and it, it requires maintenance. So you have to replace these cartridges inside these these um, in these filters as well. Um, and another alternative to get lead-free water is using like a pitcher filter, like those Brita filters, but you have to make sure it's certified to clear lead because they're, they're not all the same. Uh, but right. using these filters absolutely minimizes your exposure to lead. But the most important thing that needs to happen and something that I have learned is that our national lead rules or water safety rules are inadequate. Like we were never intended in our nation to have lead-free water. Um, and that the crux of that is in the lead and copper rule, which is part of the Safe Drinking Water Act. The EPA had a chance to revise that um, earlier this year. They kind of took a hard pass and, and did not mandate, for example, the replacement of our lead lines and didn't lower the action level. So kind of as expected in this administration, they, they failed to respect science and public health. And, and update that rule. You and I both know um, people in Flint, people we know, people that we love, um, people that are smart. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if they'll ever turn the tap on again. I don't know if they'll ever trust that water coming out of the out of the tap unless unless there's some kind of um, real uh, political leadership that comes in and takes care of everything and certifies it and, and doesn't, you know, um, uh, fake drink the water (laughs) to convince people to drink the water. Um, I don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you must hear this from parents Um, every day. Sure. You can, you can share the numbers and the science and share how the water quality is much better. And there there will be folks that, that will never drink that water again. And that is not to be dismissed or attacked, that is to be understood. The people of Flint have gone through significant trauma where they were betrayed by every governmental agency that was supposed to protect them. And those folks failed and literally lied and covered up. Uh, So that trust will take a long time to come back. Uh, It will take accountability, it will take justice, it will take long-term support. Uh, I was at recently, uh, maybe a few months ago, at a conference of philosophers, uh, really smart people who ask wonderful questions. And this question of trust came up and a really smart philosopher said, well, don't you think it's important to always have a healthy dose of mistrust? And this person was spot on. We, we all need to have that healthy dose of mistrust. We have to keep our eyes open. We have to keep asking questions. We have to verify, then trust. We have to see the data. We have to hold folks accountable. Um, so I don't think we should ever have blind trust in anyone or any government. We should always, all of us, uh, have a healthy dose of mistrust. What do you, what do you say? Okay. So I do, I have, I have that. It's on my resume. (laughs) You do. (laughs) It's on, I even put it on my census form. Um, But I, because here, because here's this, I am the perfect example of this. So when I am back uh, home uh, in Flint, or if I stay out in Davison, where my family, where, um, where I uh, uh, grew up and went to school, um, I bring water with me. If I, if I go to a restaurant with friends in Flint, I, I either, I bring the water in with me or, or they have box water or, uh, a, you know, a plastic bottle that clearly the cap hasn't been, you know, opened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I um, <clears throat> when I stay at the motel hotel, uh, out there in Davison, I don't know whether, 
I don't know the difference anymore between a motel and a, <laughs> a, a hotel has room service, right? I don't know. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, I mean, you could you can get like a sandwich or something, <laughs> right? If you're in a hotel, if a place calls itself a hotel, <laughs> it should at least have something more than just a candy machine, right? I don't know. That's how I. It's a wonderful place. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying though they have a sign on the front counter that says. Um, uh, this establishment does not use Flint water. And it's so sad to have to look at that. Um, but, but it's, but it's true. I, I'm happy. I, in, in fact, I, I don't know if it's true or not, whether they, they do use Flint water, but I, I will stay there when I'm visiting family or friends and I won't, um, um, I won't stay in a place. So what's wrong with me? What do I need to change? Or maybe I don't need to change. Maybe, maybe that skeptical eye, um, is, uh, is I'm doing something right for myself by not taking the chance. Yeah, there's, there's Michael. There's nothing wrong with you. You're perfect. <laughs> um, but no, you, uh, you're. Wait, so- can you just say that? <laughs> I'll say that one more time. I want to get that in my ringtone. The doctor said, uh, "You, there's nothing wrong with you." Uh, th- no, <laughs> I mean we should. You, we should all be more like that. We should all be more cautious. Um, in, in medicine and public health, we are governed by something called the pre- precautionary principle which is all about prevention and and erring on the side of caution of being proactive rather than reactive. Um, So we, we all should practice more of that because right now the way that our government and our systems and our public health system is, and this is another lesson from this pandemic, we are too reactive. We assume, for example, in public health that, that chemicals and explosions and and toxins and all these things are, are safe uh, before proving them dangerous, um, this uh, this actually all started with with Charles Ketter- Kettering and letting gasoline. Um, there's this uh, phrase that was established called the Keyhole Paradigm, and it was named after one of uh, General Motors' uh, lead apologist scientist who made a deal with the Surgeon General and said, you know, if you can, if we can prove that letting gasoline is harmful, then we'll take it take it away, and that set this precedent of innocent until proven guilty but like we're not talking about the criminal justice system we're talking about like the health and safety of our populations so you know we should be governed by the opposite let's assume something is dangerous and thus practice prevention and precaution rather than you know exposing our populations and our most vulnerable populations to something um so we should all have that sense of skepticism but really be governed by prevention and you believe that if um if the people of Michigan, the people of Flint have been told earlier that we could have prevented a, a lot of this. And, and in fact, had, had real scientists had any say as to whether or not to switch from Lake Huron to the Flint River, um, it could have been prevented even right back at the very beginning of this problem. Oh, there's, there's, there's so many points where this never should have happened. You know, it never should have gotten to the point where a doctor had to do research to prove that there was more lead in the blood of children. That was too late. It, it should have ended when we knew there was lead in the water, but and we knew that, and those scientists were being dismissed. Should have ended when that first mom raised a jug of brown water and said, "There's something wrong with my child." It should have ended when we knew that this water was corroding engine parts at a General Motors plant. 
Um, but it never should have started. We never should have been under emergency management. We never should have lost democracy. Um, but really, you can rewind even further, and you know the history of Flint. We never should have had you know the effects of capitalism and disinvestment and greed and white flight and all these other things that that shattered our tax base, that cuts into, you know, all of our infrastructure systems from public health to policing to, you know, the list goes on. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, points that we can rewind to that would have prevented where we are today. Mona, I, I grew up there in Flint and Davison and Genesee County there. And um, it, it was, it was the best place uh, to grow yeah. up. Uh, it was a black and white city. Yeah, We elected the first, black mayor in the country with when, when the city was still majority white, um, that the, the UAW and its anti-racist, uh, uh, platform and policies that, um, um, very early on, you know, 50, 60 years ago, um, said that we're going to go out on strike. If you keep making the African-American or the black workers Mm -hmm. work down in the, in the foundry, in the hole, uh, where it's where mm-hmm. it's very hard work and the, the air quality is awful mm-hmm. and all this and that 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 those jobs had to be rotated and white people had to work there too, and and it was in in black workers work up up in the upper levels away from this instead of of course they just should have fixed the whole damn thing yeah. so nobody would get sick but I'm just saying that yeah. that, that that I work I grew up in a working class paradise in that yeah. sense that that you. Even if you you didn't have a secondary post secondary education, um, you made enough money to have a good living to send the kids to college. Um, you you had a four week paid vacation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there was no health copay or medical deductible. Yeah, yeah, you had complete yeah. health insurance, complete yeah. dental insurance, yeah. eyeglass insurance, mm-hmm. everything, yeah. because the union fought for it. The union right. won it, right. and 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 General Motors was still the most. Uh, wealthiest. It was. It was. He was the wealthiest uh, corporation on the planet, and paid workers yeah. far more than a living wage. Yeah. All those benefits, all that vacation time, essentially the what we call the European system today. Yeah. Uh, we had in Flint. Yeah, it, it, was, <laughs> yeah, it was the American dream. The, you know, not only was Flint the birthplace of cars, it was the birthplace of prosperity in this country. And that's why this story is, is so important to be based in Flint, because Flint is the place of extremes, like literally where greed met solidarity, where bigotry met fairness, and, and where the struggle for equality has played out in our nation, and that started all in Flint. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying it was perfect, but, but we... The progressive ideas, yeah, and nobody even used the word. <laughs> nobody, Flint was not like yeah. Ann Arbor. It wasn't like nobody thought that you were left or right or progressive or whatever. It was just the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do to how we treated each other, how we would treat our ourselves, and the corporation would have to pay taxes for that to fund that. And and the corporation, I mean, they didn't like it, but they paid it, and they still made billions of dollars in profits, mm-hmm. and um, and everything was fine until it wasn't. And it's and it's when we let our guard down, when we stopped having that critical eye, uh, when somehow, and then sadly, at the time, back in the. 80s, the unions became culpable in this and going along with the company and working together. And you don't ever want to, the sheep does not want to work with the wolf. Yeah. <laughs> let me just, let me just yeah. put it that way. Yeah. The wolf is up to no good 
And, um, and while General Motors provided these jobs and did this and that and whatever, um, they did so, be, they, they had to do it with a social responsibility to the people that were making them their profits. So it was, um, I'd asked you this before, I think, you know, when, when you were in, you were in my last film, Fahrenheit 11.9. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you were talking about how you were raised when your family finally mm-hmm. made it down from the Upper Peninsula um, to, uh, to the mm-hmm. Detroit area. And that um, your parents, I mean, you had these discussions at the dinner table in terms of what's fair, what's right, yeah. um, how we're to, uh, to treat each other. You know, the book I wrote, people thought it was just going to be a Flint book. And then when people start reading it, they're like, well, this is like a memoir. This is a story about this person who was an immigrant here. And there's all these family stories. So it's it's absolutely an, o- an open book. Um, and, you know, the, to understand kind of like how I ended up in Flint and and why I, I do what I do and why I have this amazing privilege to serve children in Flint as a pediatrician. Um, that background is, is really critically important because that's kind of what shaped me. And it's through this, this immigrant lens. And I never even anticipated when I wrote this book, um, how important it, it would be to share an immigrant story. Um, this was before we were talking about walls and bands and, um, and being, you know, Iraqi, we, Iraq was on the first, uh, you know, Muslim bandless. We're, we're actually not Muslim. We're, we're Christians. We're, we're Chaldeans from Iraq, which is this very small minority. Um, but, um, you know, the my parents instilled in me through this very immigrant lens um, to be acutely aware of what injustice can be. You know, we, we were fortunate to immigrate to this country, but we were always um, attuned to what was happening back home and tuned to kind of what injustices could be. I clearly remember my father when I was about 10 or 11 um, going into his office um, and he had kind of throughout his desk, um, you know, magazines and newspaper subscriptions from like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch trying to find any information about what was happening um, back home in Iraq. And he showed me a picture from um, the massacre at Halepja which was when Saddam Hussein poisoned an entire city of Kurds. Uh, 5,000 people died that day. And, and to date, it was the largest chemical weapons attack. Attack, And, and I was 10 or 11, and you probably shouldn't have showed it to me, but I, you know, that's kind of the milieu of, of my childhood. And, and that gave me nightmares. And that taught me what people in power could do to vulnerable populations. And it was with kind of that perspective that that pushed me to medicine, pushed me to service, pushed me to be in Flint, pushed me to almost have this kind of heightened antenna for injustice, no matter where my community may be. Um, you know, and just like in kind of anybody's life or family story, it's complicated. My father worked for General Motors. Uh, my, we, our family benefited from everything, you know, that, that corporation had done, except when my dad lost all of his retirement when they went bankrupt. However, we, you know, we not only, you know, he, here he was, you know, working for a, a company yet, you know, yet we would follow what was happening in Flint and other communities. And we would follow what was happening with globalization. Um, and despite being kind of this General Motors employee, he was still an old school leftist um, who, you know, was trying to share the importance of what it means to kind of stand up for justice and, and fight for folks who are more vulnerable. Um, so that's kind of the the background that I grew up in, which which pushed me um, to be where I am and to kind of think like I think and to really use medicine and health as another form of of social justice. 
Um, if you do not have your health and if we have these kind of, you know, striking in- inequities in health, which we are seeing right now with this pandemic and which is what we see, um, which we, what we saw obviously in Flint, um, then, then what do we have? Hmm. Well, what we have right now is this pandemic yeah. that we're in the middle of. And I know you're not an uh, epidemiologist or whatever, mm-hmm. but you are a doctor and, and you um, I consider you also a scientist because of, <laughs> yep. of the work you've done and the discovery uh, that you made. But you, I mean, can we talk about this for a few minutes? Because yeah. I think there, are, as you said, there's so many lessons that we learned in, with Flint and with the Flint water situation that um, that right now, um, I think, well, first of all, to, just to use the, the words you used regarding Flint, um, this was preventable. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly the extent of how awful it's become did not need to go to this level. Um, there were people that wanted to ignore it, um, push it aside, say it was something else. It'll be over next week. It's going to be a miracle. Just you watch. Yeah. I mean, uh, on and on and on. And now look you know, where we're at. And, and frankly, you know, the people that I speak to as I do these podcasts occasionally to give updates on where we're at with this pandemic and I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but I um, have some very good people and sources uh, at the NIH, um, at various levels of government, at some of our top hospitals, uh, research hospitals in this country. And um, I'm always loath to have to want to tell people sort of the, the awful truth um, that, uh, but, you know, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, um, who was at the NIH for many years and People have seen him a lot on TV recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few weeks ago, he just blurted out on CNN that um, this is at least a two-year pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. Wolf Blitzer lost it and t- totally changed the subject, did not want to mm-hmm. have people be depressed and listen to that. But, you know, and so, but he, Dr. Manuel, um, kept trying to explain to people, here, this is just the fact of where we're at. And instead mm-hmm. of shying away from it, let's deal with it. And let, let's see how, what can we do to figure out um, how to, first of all, survive, but then how do we, how do we live what we used to call a normal life, which I don't think we're going to go, no. go back to what, what's your, what's your sense of it? What do you, what do you, what are you telling yourself? What are you telling your husband or your, the, yeah. the you know, n- not your kids, but, but just the adults in your life. Cause they must ask you, you're a doctor, yeah. you, you know, you're yeah, used to so. being asked for everything yeah. from ingrown toenails to, <laughs> Yeah. Here, look at look at listen to this cough. <laughs> um, yeah. But 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 uh, I I because I so respect you, I would love to hear yeah. the honest truth now. Not this is not Doctor Hopeful. Uh, no, uh, yeah. T-shirt. Yes. Uh, I already assume you're hopeful. So, but <laughs> but I but I think sometimes that that um, ignorance is dangerous, and and I'd rather you just tell me tell me give me the worst shot of it, and then I with my brain and everybody else, we can start to figure out how we're going to do it. We're not going to go into a panic. I'm, I'm not going to raid my neighbor's apartment here for more toilet paper. You know, I'm going to just, I'm going to be gonna, okay. Yeah, you're going to install the day. truth. Yeah, yeah. So oh. give us some truth. Yeah. So, I mean, I will share what I know, what I have read, what I have been able to digest. And, um, I'm and a your instinct and your and, instinct, and my instinct. And, um, I'm also trained in public health. So I've had those courses in epidemiology and biostats and all these different things. So, um, it is kind of of a different lens that I think 
most doctors is kind of being able to see what's happening at the population, which is the beauty of of having that public health background. Um, this is this is we're in this for the for the long term. We will there will never be. Uh, at least not in the near future, uh, back to baseline. There's not a simple switch that we can turn on to go back to how it used to be. Where I, I hope that we, we all wear masks for a very long time in public places. Um, I think we're going to have to limit all um, events with a lot of people. We're going to have to significantly ramp up testing to make sure that it is, uh, to see what the prevalence of this disease is in our populations. We don't even know that yet because our testing has been so inadequate. We have to put robust um, investment into tracing, contact tracing to, to find the folks who are positive and to find all the folks that they came into contact with and then isolate those folks. So it's this uh, kind of three-step test, trace, isolate that needs to ramp up throughout this nation. And I don't think it's it's gone well anywhere yet in this country. Um, and we can't use the crux of, oh, it's impossible to do this. We can't just shrug our shoulders and say, we can't do this because there have been so many countries that have crushed this virus. I mean, look at New Zealand, look at South Korea, look at all these countries that have not only flattened the curve, but I think New Zealand is, has now called for the that they were able to eliminate this virus it's gone under the curve um so we we can't say that this is impossible this is possible with proper investment with with leading with science and with once again um being proactive rather than how we are often as reactive we have to the the number one focus in all of this has to be about people and our populations, not the economy and corporate profits. And, you know, if anywhere knows that, Flint knows that because, you know, it was it was dollars that ran our decisions. It wasn't what's best for people. Uh, that is a, a crux of public health. Mm. So when you say we're in this for the long term or the long haul, when you talk about the masks and the uh, gloves and the social distancing and all that, you're not talking about to the end of June. No, this is months, if not years. Um, And there's going to be resistance. I read this great article about the 1918 pandemic and and folks wanted to open up early. And in San Francisco, you know, they were mandating masks. And what rose was an anti-mask society. Uh, Folks were resisting the use of masks and then they had more deaths. Um, So we we have to once again kind of learn from our history um, and respect the science and be governed by prevention and precaution. Right. So my my two, these, I have these two nonprofit movie theaters up in Traverse city there in Michigan. Um, They're not going to open anytime soon, are they? And, and, and when, and if they do, people are going to be wearing masks. Those who work there, those who come to see a movie there, um, they're, you know, we're going to have to block off uh, seats and, whole aisles so that they sit far enough apart from each other. Yeah. Um, And we have to protect our employees, like the folks that work at that movie theater, the folks that are preparing our our food, the folks folks in public transportation. These are not disposable people. These are what we now refer to as our critical infrastructure. They are keeping our country running, yet we have failed to properly protect them and and obviously healthcare workers too. Yes, but the the people who are stocking uh, the shelves at night in the grocery stores, they come to work putting their life at risk yeah. so that we can eat food because we need to eat. We need water. We need, you know, that whoever's working the water plant right now, making sure that when I do turn that tap on, that water does come out. Okay. Um, 
And so we need to have we need to have enough, you know, PPE for all these folks. And we, we don't have enough right now. What are we going to do here? I mean, the despair when people I know when they're listening to you and I talk about this, they have this sense that I don't. We're going to vote. We're all going to vote. <laughs> That's what all, we're going to do. <laughs> yes. Yes. I want um, I, I want to make a little button or a, some kind of poster or something that says I will crawl through broken glass to vote <laughs> on <laughs> November 3rd. Like, I don't care what it is, um, but we do need that. We need mail-in voting. We need to make sure that it's not tinkered with. Um, we need, we, you know, but, but, but seeing people line up there in Wisconsin a couple yeah. of weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I mean, thought, once again, this, this could have been prevented with good governance, with competent leadership um that value the lives of our most vulnerable so you know when it gets down to it we need to vote yeah but voting is in november and we are you and i are talking now at the end of april um well (laughs) that's a long time to wait and then the inauguration is until january and and we have to not just vote for the president we have to vote for the senate if the Mm -hmm. senate remains the hurdle if it remains in the hands of one party, we can't get anything done for four years. This is, I, I um, oh, geez. We have to, then things that we can do now is contribute to campaigns, uh, volunteer on, you know, campaigns and issue-oriented um, advocacy organizations. There's a lot that we can do. We can write letters. We can hold folks accountable. Uh, there's a lot of bills. Uh, I think Monday they're going to have another vote in the House. There's a lot that we can do to be civically engaged, to raise our voices, uh, to ensure that what is being done is what's best for for people in public health. Right, right. From what you know of this virus, um, it. I mean, I made a joke earlier about we can kill it with 20 seconds of uh, soap and water. Yeah. Um, or we could all drink bleach. Just kidding. I didn't say that. Do not <laughs> drink bleach. <laughs> no, 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 no. No. Uh, yes, I know. I. I know in Michigan we're close to Canada, so satire and the ironic statement they understand. Uh, yeah, it's because they have more of a British Irish uh, yeah. sense of humor. You know, um, in in my pediatric visits, that's what we sh- we share with toddlers because two year olds sometimes get into things and and do things like drink bleach. So it's it's common common recommendations that we make in our when you heard toddlers. when you heard this individual say that. And he wasn't joking. And he said later it was a sarcastic. He was being sarcastic. He wasn't sarcastic. He was actually turning and looking to his doctors yeah. to verify it. He wanted them to back him up that uh, a little bit of a bit of uh, disinfectant in our bodies might help. Um, that day when that happened last week, as a doctor, I'm just curious, um, which was it your left or right brain that exploded? Both. Uh, you know, as a, as a, as a doctor... I have literally, literally raised my hand and taken an oath to protect patients entrusted in my care. Um, you know, no matter how that needs to happen, be it through individual care or, or speaking up about a poisoning in your city, that is an oath that I have taken. And for the other doctor that was in that room, um, I, I don't know how she stayed silent <laughs> um, because that is against the oath that we have taken. Um, mm-hmm. You need to, to protect people. And his words hurt people. There was an uptick in yeah. calls to the poison control with, because of his words. Yeah. 
She did look, Dr. Burks did look sick yeah. um, when he said it. It's an awful yeah. look on her face. Yeah. And, uh, um, but you're right. It's, this is the time for all Americans to be brave, to take a stand, to give of their time, uh, because th- this, this won't go. You know, what I try to say to people is the virus is actually, it's part of the planet. It's yeah. part of life. Yeah. We, we have viruses on yeah. this planet. We have and bacteria. Yeah. yeah. These are things. Um, and over the years, I love the end of um, um, H.G. Wells' uh, War of the Worlds mm-hmm. when the alien invaders, the, the whatever they are, the machines, they just die on their own because they didn't have the benefit of millions of years of evolution. And for humans, uh, tens of thousands of years of building up immunities. Mm-hmm. And the invaders, the aliens, had no immune system to the bacteria and mm-hmm. viruses of planet earth. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, you know this, I mean, we, we have, I don't know how many millions of microbes and mm-hmm. things inside of us mm-hmm. every day that our immune system is going, pow, 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 yeah. pow, pow, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and keeping us alive. Yeah. It's an amazing system, the human body. And, and so um, I, I just, what do you, t- when, what do you, you know, when your brother-in-law calls or, or a cousin and says, Tell me, what else do I need to do besides the social distancing, the washing of the hands? Um, what what other little pieces of advice do you give them to stay healthy right now? Sure. And you you touched on a, on a lot of this earlier in your intro. Um, take care of yourself. Uh, you know, this has been a really anxiety and stressful time for everybody. Um, so make sure that kind of your mental health is okay. Uh, ask for help. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, if you're stressed out and, you know, if, if you need to talk to somebody, uh, that needs to be recognized. Uh, you know, stay home, physically distance, wear a mask, wash your hands. Uh, many states have kind of volunteer um, uh, opportunities. So check those out. You can make, you know, cloth masks at home or you can make phone calls for seniors who might be isolated. Um, you know, I think a cure to, for a lot of the loneliness and isolation that that a lot of us feel is 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 treated when we reach out and make connections with people. So I don't really like the word, word social distancing. I like physical distancing, but we need to stay socially connected because that's what binds us. And I hope that kind of as we are all in the midst of this really physically isolating experience, um, that we really have this opportunity to reflect and realize how connected we are. Like we are so connected. Yeah, obviously, like we can't see and touch each other right now. But if this teaches us anything, it is how connected we are and how connected we need to be. Um, so you, you know this just as a pediatrician. I mean, all the studies that have been done long ago that show that if babies aren't touched, yeah. if children are not held, yeah, that the effect that the long-term, lifelong yeah. effect that this has on them. But what is it doing to adults? who are not able to um, be with other, we are social creatures and right. we're not able to be with other people. We are not able to touch or to hold, yeah. to, to have that intimacy. Yeah. Personally, so having, having recovered now from coronavirus, the hardest part of my sickness, which thankfully was mild, was not being able to touch my children. I am a hugger. I am a kisser. Like I tuck them in at night, you know, we snuggle. That's treatment for me. That's therapeutic for them. 
and not to be able to do that for a couple of weeks was was really really hard um but mm. but fortunately like thank goodness this happened now rather than 15 years before when we didn't have facetime and zoom and all these amazing technologies technologies that enable us to actually see each other so i mean my parents or my my kids facetime with their grandparents every day and they have like virtual cooking classes and they they hear old stories of back home or whatever so there are some things that can connect us you know that we we should try to use more um but i'm hopeful that if we do respect science and if we follow all these recommendations um the more that we do now in terms of the kind of the distancing um the quicker it is going to be that we can go back to um, a new normal, not the same as it was, but at least kind of hugging our grandparents again. Right. But it won't be this summer. No, it won't be this summer. It won't be this summer, no. but, but this will end. Uh, right. This, this will end and, and it will also end if we have an effective vaccine. Um, but that's not, uh, for one or two years away. And, and that's, um, that's also a concern in, in this society where we have many folks who do not vaccinate their children. Will they, will they vaccinate their kids um, and their, and their loved ones for, for this deadly disease? You know, there's been, there's been quite a few positive kind of silver linings of, of this pandemic. And I think one is, um, is that finally, you know, younger generations are seeing what a bad disease could be. Like so many folks never saw measles or, you know, diphtheria or polio or all these things that we don't see anymore because we have vaccines. But now here's something that's really bad that's, that's killing people. And like, oh, my gosh, a vaccine can maybe prevent, you know, more people from getting sick. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll actually have a little more vaccine acceptance after this pandemic. And what do we do about the anti-vaxxers? I, I mean, will anybody want their child in a classroom again with the child of, of people that believe they shouldn't be vaccinated. Yeah, it's um, you know. What do, what do we? I mean, I don't want mean to open up a can of worms. Yeah, there, but, no. Uh, yeah, your county, where where uh, Traverse County and Traverse City has one of the highest um, rates of uh, vaccine refusal, um, and they had a recent outbreak of whooping cough of pertussis um, because of that. Um, so I think it's 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 very selfish of of families um, to put others at risk. So yeah, I understand that you may not want to get a vaccine for your kid. That's fine for your kid if they lived in a bubble and they never interacted with other kids or other people in our society. However, there's other folks out there who are immunocompromised. Their immune system is not that strong. They're battling cancer or they have another condition that makes their immune system weak, that they, that vaccines don't work as well for them. They're putting all those other people at risk. So this gets back to the crux of, of, of who we are as a society. Are we are we more of a we people where we take care of each other or are we more of an I people? Hmm. Well, I know the answer sadly to that. I hate to say it because one of the great things about this country, even though we, we um, mostly at the beginning spoke English, not everybody spoke English though. And, um, but the first, not English word, but the first American word that was written down legally was the word we, yeah. we, the people yeah. it's right at the very beginning. Of, of of our our um our constitution right. and um the countries that live in the place of we yeah. um have so, so many better things than we have in terms of their social structure and how they treat each other and take care Absolutely. of each other 
And those who operate under the concept of me, 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 yeah. um, are the ones that hurt and suffer. And this is why I think that you're right. The silver lining of this is we are, go- we are going to, post-pandemic, live differently with each other. I hope so. And we're going to love each other in, yeah. in a way that truly practices the golden rule that um, I don't want your child to get sick because I won't tr- treat my child the way it should be treated, he or she should be treated. Um, that, that I think that thinking, I hope that thinking will be gone. And, um, or, or, you know, I I watched a really great movie about this, uh, Word Invade Next, uh, which talks, (laughs) uh, which shares a lot about the, the we countries versus the me countries. Where you said that was called where 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 to invade next? Yeah, I forget. Oh, where to invade next? Yeah. Oh, okay, we're okay. I'm laughing because, of course, if you don't know this, I made that movie <laughs> back in in 2015. But basically, yes, I go to nine countries, uh, from uh, Tunisia to Norway to um, you know, and I show my fellow Americans what life would be like if um, everybody had health care if. Um, everybody had a decent job. If the kids had a four course meal for oh, lunch, like they do in France. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's the crazy scene oh, in the movie. I love that. Uh, to see how they treat their children at lunch. Oh. They don't, they don't feed them Thursday surprise. No. Um, they, uh, or mass incarceration or yeah. any of the other things that. Um, paid leave. Um, paid leave. How about the, the law in, in Germany? Now they've passed it in France where the boss can't call you at home after yeah, work unless yeah. it's a, like a true emergency. Yeah. They cannot, they can't send you an email yeah. from work yeah. after five or six o'clock. Yeah. Like, like, because they respect the fact that that's your family time. That's your downtime. And, um, but and these, I think we'll get healthier, this. These are helped to become healthier societies. Like the science is also clear. These are the places that spend less on health care uh, because they invest in what makes you healthy. Um, and we're doing the exact opposite. We spend so much money on healthcare after people are sick, yet we don't invest in these things like childcare and, and school lunches and universal healthcare and, and paid leave, all these things that this pandemic is, you know, making us all rip open and see what's happening. Uh, glaringly, these are the things that make people healthy. These are the things that prevent disparities. Um, and, and this is the direction we need to be going. I think that we're going to have less of this, this disparity. I really, I know, I know that there are millions of people in this country that um, admire uh, and uh, idolize the president. I know there are people who believe the earth is only 6,000 years old. Uh, and it's flat. I, I can live flat with them. Too. And it's flat. Yes. <laughs> And, um, um, but I know the vast, vast majority of our fellow Americans now, especially now after this pandemic, they see the broken healthcare system. They see that how yeah. we, we need to be like Canada and these other countries. Yeah. We need to take care of each other. Um, when they, they've been letting out so many people out of prison because it's one of the hotspots for yeah. getting this sure. virus. They never should have been and in they, prison. And, Mm-hmm. And they're all, and the governors are all saying we're only letting the people out that didn't really do anything serious. And I'm thinking, well, then why were they in there in the first place if it wasn't serious? Don't we have other means to take care of and help people that have made a mistake, that are addicted to drugs, that have mental health issues? I see a day very soon, post pandemic, 
when we are going to never want to go back to this again. We're not going to want to see the next pandemic that, that where it won't just be the virus lives for 20 seconds in the air that, you know, whenever it becomes airborne, um, we don't, I'm with um, you. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for that day. Aren't you? Absolutely. Well, do you listen do you hear this outside the window here? Can you, it's, it's at <laughs> seven o'clock. It's all the cheering oh, in New York. That's awesome. uh, every now oh. and then when I happen to be recording at this time and the people are cheering, they're oh. whistling, they're banging on pans. That's beautiful. Um, you should go out there and sing opera. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. That would so scare the neighbors. <laughs> yes. It, what? Oh, that's <laughs> Do you hear beautiful. that? Yeah, it's beautiful. Right? It's beautiful. It, it's and it's also it's like a primal yell too Ugh. from people. They're it's like, cathartic. It's absolutely cathartic. It's cathartic. They yeah. don't want this anymore. They don't want to live like this anymore. Ugh. That's why I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I'm listen too. to that. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's let's translate that to activism and resistance and voter turnouts. There you go. Um, Dr. Mona, uh, I so appreciate you uh, talking to me today here on Rumble. Um, thank you for the work you've done to help Flint. Uh, thank you for writing uh, this uh, uh, great book, uh, What the Eyes Don't See. Thank you. Um, and um, uh, when, when are you going to go back to work? Are you still recuperating and recovering? Or? Uh, I'm, just, I'm working. Kind I'm not of... telling you you have to go back to work. <laughs> I'm, just... uh, I'm working remotely. I'll be back in clinic next week seeing patients. Oh my God. Yeah. A good silver lining in medicine is the, um, is the use of telemedicine. So we're, we're, we should have been doing this a decade ago. So now we're able to, uh, reach people a little easier, especially those who have difficulty accessing transportation. Well, that's been a, that's sorry. It's it's crazy outdoors. Um, that's a good thing. Yes. Many good things that will come out of this. And, um, for those kids in Flint, um, for the parents of those kids who might be listening to this, especially the ones who are between six and 12 years old, mm. the behaviors that you're seeing now as they are tweens and getting ready to be teenagers. Um, you know, you've spoken about this before. It's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard on any of us, especially from there. But I think, uh, you have felt the empathy of the world. Uh, on this and uh, so thanks to all that have contributed to the various funds in Flint because these kids are going to need help. Yeah. Um, they won't be able to get rid of what the lead did to the permanent, the permanent damage to their brains, but there are treatments and ways and therapies that you and others have developed. And maybe just, we should close by telling people where if they wanted to contribute yeah, to help. Thank you. Uh, the yeah. Kids in Flint. So we created the Flint Kids Fund, uh, flintkids.org. We've been able to raise about $20 million, which speaks volumes to the generosity of this nation. We've given out about $8 million, and that's gone to playgrounds and and children's books and breastfeeding support and home visiting, all these things that science tells us will make the lives of children better. Uh, But this is long-term work. So um, if you are willing to give, give to flintkids.org, but just find something you care about. And there's a lot of things out there and, and contribute to that. Wow. Thank you. 20 million. I did yeah. not realize it had gone that high. It's uh, amazing. Uh, it's, wow, it's really amazing. I think, uh, I think the people in Flint are very grateful to those of you who have helped us uh, from around the country and around the world. And, um, you know, when I think of what our grandparents, my dad, my uncle, great grandparents, all who, who worked in the factories in Flint, mm-hmm. who, who held those strikes in the yeah. early years, 
to get a better life. They created the middle class. It didn't you exist did. before. You did. You did. It, it didn't exist. It, there yeah. was those who had money and then everybody else that, that worked seven days a week, uh, 12 hours a day yeah. in brutal conditions. And that's, and, that's, uh, that's what America's all about. It is that yeah. solidarity that we need to get back to. But it was a gift that Flank gave the world in terms of that, that fight and what, yep. and that, how it resulted in a better life. Yep. And the fact that people have given back to, to Flint in this, in this time that has been a dark time for many, many years, long before the coronavirus. Um, I'm grateful to those who've, who've helped. I'm grateful to you. And you. Um, let's talk again soon. And please, uh, please stay well. And I hope your, your husband and your kids are okay too. Um, Likewise. It's great talking to you, Michael, all the time. All right. Be well. You too. Take care. And uh, to everybody listening, um, uh, we'll be back again um, very soon. Uh, with our next uh, Rumble uh, podcast. Um, uh, please uh, join us then and uh, uh, take care of yourselves and don't, f- don't forget to wash your hands. All right, take care. Bye.